Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you today. It has been a uh, high honor to join you. There is a children's game called Marco Polo. I never played it as a child because we never had a pool, but later in life I learned of this game. I think it's pretty simple. One child will close his or her eyes in a pool, and then he will say, Marco, and he will listen for the voices of the other children, and based upon where that voice is coming from, that child will move in that direction. Marco Polo, you know of, of the game. All right, very good, let's pray. Father, today uh, we are tired because it is later in the day, and we are fallen, and we are finite, our minds are prone to wander. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enable us physically to get through this session. Lord, I pray that everyone will be interested and leaning forward uh, concerning what I will have to bring this afternoon. I pray for myself. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that I would be filled with love and compassion for the people to whom I am speaking. I would pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would give me clarity. I pray, dear Lord, that I could speak with conviction. And I pray, Lord, that these, your shepherds, would be encouraged today. And I pray that they would be able to train their people to be encouragers. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So my oldest son, Parker, spent his senior year of high school in Georgia. We sent him from New York to Georgia for two reasons. Number one, so that he could become a resident of the state of Georgia so as to get Georgia State tuition, uh, become a resident to get tuition um, reduced for the University of Georgia where he went. That's where he wanted to go. That's where he went. The second reason that we sent him there is so that he could play football. He never had played football, he loved football, and so he wanted to play one year of high school football. As he started out, it was a little bit more difficult than he thought it was going to be, and uh, he was a little bit discouraged. So as a good father, this was 2008, as a good father, what I did is I purchased for him three used, inexpensive DVDs and mailed them to him all at the same time, and the three DVDs were Rocky, Rudy and the Pursuit of Happiness. Rocky, Rudy, the Pursuit of Happiness. If you haven't seen these films, all you have to do is watch one of them. They are all the same film. <laughs> Here's what happens. There is someone who receives no encouragement from the outside. They are expected to, and they do, pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, and they press on and they persevere with no encouragement from the outside. Rocky, Rudy, the pursuit of happiness. Unfortunately, in the church today, many church members treat one another as if the other person is Rocky Balboa. Everybody is expected to encourage themselves, and we do not encourage one another. However, Scripture commands us. There is an imperative to encourage one another. I would ask, please, that you would take your copy of the Scripture and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to be read, reading verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, 
in light of what has just been said, here's the imperative, encourage one another and build one another up or edify one another just as you are doing. All right, let's look at the text here. First of all, I would like to point out that in being an encourager, you are being godly. You are being godly. First of all, concerning God the Father. It says in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 5, that God is the God of endurance and encouragement. So if we are to look like our heavenly Father, He is an encourager. He is the God of all encouragement. As you encourage, you are like God the Father. As you encourage, you are also like the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The word for encourage there is parakaleo. And by the way, that is the correct uh, mispronunciation of the Greek word. Uh, but, but it sounds enough like and it looks like the word that our Lord used in the upper room discourse when he was speaking to his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, when he talked about the one who would come, the paraclete or parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And to encourage, to, it means literally just to come alongside someone to help them. Well, what was Jesus saying to his disciples? He was saying that the Holy Spirit will come and he will come alongside you and he will be the helper. So when we are encouragers, we are like the Holy Spirit. There's another thing that I want you to see about the text, which is very ironic, and that is that Paul masterfully encourages them as he is commanding them to be encouragers. Look at that last phrase there. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And then he adds this little tag, just as you are doing. You know what that just as you are doing is? It is encouragement. So I'm commanding you to encourage one another. And by the way, you're already doing it. That is encouragement within the encouragement. But the main thing that I want you to see in the text uh, and if you miss this thing in the text, then you are really missing the heart of the text. The main thing that I want you to see in the text is that biblical encouragement is propelled by the gospel. I mean, look at how the text develops. First of all, good news, we're not going to hell. For God has not destined us for wrath. There will be some people who will be in hell. They will be in eternal conscious punishment forever, writhing in pain with no means of escape. But that is not you. That is not you. So why is that not me? Well, that is not me. is because God has not destined me for that. But by contrast, what God has done is he has destined us to obtain salvation and how does that salvation come to us? Well, it comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives the gospel in verse 10. What is it that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us so that we might obtain salvation? Well, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Uh, that's the heart of biblical encouragement. Uh, you're going to spend eternity somewhere. You are a sinner. You are deserving of hell, but you're not going to be going to that hell. And the reason that you're not going to be going to that hell 
is because the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for you. That is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. He died for us, and then Paul goes on to say, and so in light of the fact that he died for us, circumstances really don't matter. In fact, nothing else matters comparatively speaking, other than the fact that Jesus died for us and that we will be saved. So he says that whether we are awake or asleep, that's just a euphemistic way of saying whether we live or we die, it really doesn't matter. We are going to live, live eternally with him. It is that gospel message that sets up the biblical doctrine of encouragement. And notice that he does not say encourage one another and build one another up. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And so if we begin to talk about encouragement apart from the gospel, really all it becomes is a, a pep talk or a halftime speech or a pat on the back or how to win friends and influence people or I would be teaching you how to motivate one another or worse yet to flatter one another or how you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. It basically becomes a Tony Robbins seminar if the gospel is not attached to it. So that word therefore is important. Here you have the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ died for us and in light of that, nothing else matters. And in light of the fact that he died for us, here's the propeller, here's the thrust, here is, here's what motivates the entire doctrine of encouragement. Therefore, in light of the, of the death of Christ in place of his people, you are to encourage one another and to build one another up. So, let's look at our state, objectively speaking. You remember Fanny Crosby? She writes, what a friend we have in Jesus. And there is a little hokey phrase in there that says, we should never be discouraged. Ridged. And I always thought about that as like, ah, hmm, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe sometimes I should be discouraged. Well, if you look at it objectively, I think Fanny got it right. In light of what we have with our possession being Christ, we should never be discouraged, objectively speaking. I mean, we are joined to Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have been reconciled. Home, our home is in heaven. We have been justified. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We have Bibles. We have one another. Objectively speaking, there's no reason why we should ever be discouraged. But God, in his wisdom, knows that we are fallen and that we are finite and that we do need one another and that we do need encouragement and so he says to the church at Thessalonica therefore in light of the gospel encourage one another and build one another up but just let me be clear there is no valid reason for anyone to be discouraged well if we are commanded to encourage one another what is it that would cause us to be discouraged? I mean, some of you who are in the throes of discouragement right now could maybe answer this question a lot better than I could, but you, you know why you are discouraged. You live in a discouraging world. Not everybody in the room is a pastor. You have taken off work today to come here, and you're hearing the Word of God, and you are in Christian fellowship, but what's going to happen tomorrow is you're going to go back to your job, and when you walk in, 
Uh, you're going to be subjected to uh, the vulgar stories that your coworkers are telling. You are going to be uh, inundated with sin coming at you from every angle, and sin certainly will discourage you. We live in a discouraging world, and we also have an adversary, the devil, roaming about, seeking whom he may uh, devour. Uh, he is a discourager. And you know what? You yourself are a discourager. You, by nature, are a liar, and the person that you lie to the most is yourself. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So what you are doing is, by nature, you are not speaking truth to yourself. By nature, you are speaking discouraging lies to yourself. Um, maybe you are in a discouraging family. Uh, perhaps some of you might be married to someone that is not a Christian, or you are in a home where you are not receiving encouragement, or maybe you are discouraged because things are rough with your job, or maybe you don't even have a job. And maybe you don't even have a prospect for a job and maybe the money is tight. Or maybe there are other circumstances in life which cause you to be discouraged. Or maybe you are physically sick. People who do not feel well have a tendency to be discouraged. Or maybe there is just that ominous thing that is called depression. And if you have never been through depression, you don't know how discouraging and how debilitating it can be. There are just a lot of reasons why people in this world would be discouraged. I think Job put it best when he said, man born of woman is of few days and full of troubles. Therefore, God in his wisdom says to those of you who are saved, talk to one another, speak to one another, edify one another, and encourage one another. So this seems pretty simple. This could be a very short sermon. I mean, people are discouraged. God tells us to encourage one another. Why don't people do it? Well, for some, it is easier than others. For some people, they do not encourage others because they themselves have never been encouraged. About 20 years ago, I was making a sermon illustration I brought my oldest son, Parker, up onto the platform with me. I believe I was preaching on um, the passage where God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I wanted to illustrate that for the congregation. And so my son, who was about nine years old at the time, I brought him up and I said, Parker, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that I am pleased with you. And I want all of these people to know that I love you and that I am pleased with you. I am so glad that God has brought you into our home. I am thoroughly pleased with you. Now, please sit down. And that was the end of the illustration. It was a very minor portion of the sermon. I thought nothing of it. And as I was standing at the door shaking hands with people as they were leaving, there was a woman who was in her mid-80s at the time. This woman, I didn't even know that she had tear ducts. I mean, I never showed, she never showed any emotion whatsoever. But she shakes my hand as she is walking out the door, and tears are running down her cheeks. And she says to me, Pastor, when you brought that boy up there on the stage that broke my heart because my mother and father lived and died and never once did either of them ever tell me that they loved me. So I think it would be tough for you to be an encourager if you were never encouraged yourself. Uh, for other people, 
it just doesn't really fit their personality. They are more reserved. They are not as verbose. Uh, they are not as animated, and it just doesn't come naturally for some. Some people don't uh, encourage others because they are hurting themselves, and they're not really looking outside of themselves at all. They are just in pain themselves. Well, for those of you that would use this as your excuse not to be an encourager, please consider the Lord Jesus Christ. For never has anyone ever been in more pain than he was hanging on the cross, but he used the few words that he had. And by the way, for him to utter any words, it was extremely physically challenging for him to do it, but the words that he did use on the cross, he used to encourage others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, in great pain, used his words to encourage others. Some people do not encourage because they are, quite frankly, just jealous. Uh, if they see someone else succeeding at someone in order for them to come along and tell that person that they are doing a good job, it would be an acknowledgement that in that area that that person is superior to them and they're not willing to admit that. There are a number of reasons why people don't encourage. Maybe they don't encourage just simply because they are so self-consumed or they are lazy. I don't know what the reason is why people don't encourage, but I can tell you this, and as pastors, you know this already. You know, generally speaking, that most people are not good at encouragement. What does encouragement look like? Well, let me tell you a Bible story. Bible story starts in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, with a man by the name of Joseph. But you probably don't know him as Joseph. You would know him by the name of Barnabas. Uh, he, his parents give him the name Joseph. He is born in Cyprus. He moves to Jerusalem. Uh, somewhere along the way, he becomes saved. And he, somewhere along the way, becomes wealthy, at least wealthy enough to buy a field or to buy a piece of property. And then he takes that piece of property and he sells it and he lays the money at the disciples' feet. Well, the disciples are so encouraged by the encouragement of Barnabas that they change his name from Joseph to Barnabas, which being translated means son of encouragement. I'll say more about that later in that he gave money, which was an encouragement to the church. But we also see him encouraging when it comes to Saul of Tarsus. You'll remember Saul of Tarsus. He is a Christ hater. He is a Christian killer. He is on his way to Damascus with letters to arrest Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they might be tried and executed. And he is gloriously converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The bright light comes from heaven. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He goes into Damascus. Ananias comes to him, prays for him. He receives his sight. And he then spends the next three years in Arabia. Not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia near Damascus. And then he wants to make his way back to Jerusalem, back to the mothership, back to see where it all started. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, the first thing that he does when he comes in, he finds some Christians. He wants to be in fellowship with the church there. And Paul was not received into the church. They thought that it was a trick. He who formerly persecuted the church is now here 
He is really not one of us. He just wants an inside track so that he can persecute us. And so he is not received by the fellowship in Jerusalem. Side note, having nothing to do with the text at all, but if someone comes to you and they do a membership interview with you and you reject them, please just remind them that the greatest Christian who ever lived, the first time he tried to join a church, he failed his interview to join the church, but that's another sermon for another day. How is it that Saul of Tarsus is actually given an audience with the disciples and with the church in Jerusalem. It is because Barnabas steps in, the son of encouragement, goes to bat for Paul and says, listen guys, he is the real deal. He has seen the Lord. He really is one of us. And then for 15 days, Paul is in Jerusalem and he is proclaiming boldly that Jesus is the Christ. Paul does not have an opportunity for that fellowship. He does not have an opportunity for that ministry if it is not for Barnabas. Fast forward to the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is stoned. The Christians are scattered. Some of them go to different places. One of the places where they went was to Antioch. And the disciples want to know, what in the world is going on at Antioch? Well, let's send a representative to see. And in sending a representative, yes, they want to see what's going on, but there might be a certain amount of skepticism that is involved in this. And so they send Barnabas. When Barnabas gets there, and here's the, here's the, the quintessential definition of encouragement. He gets there, he sees the grace of God, so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. He sees the grace of God, and he is glad. He is happy. And then with many words, he exhorts them to press on. Acts chapter 11, verse 23. The son of encouragement. Fast forward to what we like to call the first missionary journey. Church at Antioch, they're going to be sending out missionaries. Who does the Holy Spirit want us to send? Barnabas and Saul. And there's another guy who comes along, and his name is Mark, or John Mark, originally from Jerusalem, spending a little bit of time in Antioch, but sailing off with Saul and Barnabas. Where do they go? They go from Antioch down to Cyprus. They make their way across the island. So far, so good. They sail north, and they make their way up into the region, the Roman region that we call Galatia. And for some reason, it is never explained to us, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, John Mark quits, and he goes home. Saul and Barnabas continue their way up into Galatia. They plant churches. They make their way back down to Antioch. Then they have to go over to Jerusalem and settle the controversy concerning whether or not Gentiles need to be uh, circumcised in order to be saved. They come back to Antioch. They're teaching there. And Saul says, you know what? I think we should go back and visit the churches. And Barnabas says, you know what? I think we should go back and visit the churches. Let me get John Mark and Paul says, no way, uh-uh, no. He bailed on us the first time. We are not going to take him back with us again. And the division between Paul and Barnabas is such that Paul gets a new partner, which is Silas, and they head north, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they sail back down to Cyprus. Now, I'm not here today to answer the question or to solve the dispute 
as to who was right in this controversy. If I had to be a betting man, I would say probably it was Paul who was right in this particular case for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the narrative which Luke writes follows Paul and not Barnabas. And the other reason is because Paul and Silas were the ones who were commended to the grace of God. But be that as it may, be that as it may, here's what I do know. Paul gets to the end of his life. And in the last book he writes, 2 Timothy, in the last chapter of the last book that he writes, he writes to young Timothy and he says, bring John Mark or Mark with you when you come to visit me for not only is he profitable, but he is profitable to me for ministry. So what in the world happened to John Mark from the time that he was a quitter and left the mission field to the end of Paul's life where now this is the one person that he is requesting by name that would come and minister to him. I will tell you what happened. Encouragement. Somebody came alongside him. Somebody did not quit on him. Somebody helped him along the way. The biblical doctrine of encouragement. That's what it looks like. And you say, what in the world is the value of that? Well, what happens, brothers and sisters? What happens if when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he is never affirmed by the church and he is never affirmed by the apostles? I hope your ecclesiology would be such that you would say that Paul could not be a freelance Christian who was just out there sent by nobody. No, Paul needed the affirmation of the apostles in Jerusalem. How does he get that? He gets that through the biblical doctrine of encouragement through Barnabas. I don't know about you, but I enjoy reading the 13 letters of Paul, which indirectly come through the encouraging ministry of Barnabas. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to pick up the second book of the New Testament that was written by John Mark. How in the world does John Mark go from being a quitter to being one who is entrusted with one of four accounts of the Lord's life. It is through the biblical doctrine of encouragement. What you are doing in encouraging others is going to have a large impact upon the kingdom of God. So I never knew a child that was worse than myself. I don't say that to be funny. I'm objectively speaking. God is my witness. I've known a lot of bad children, but I never knew one that was worse than me. I can remember when I was five years old, we were lined up on the stage at the Christian Missionary Alliance Church in Du Bois, Pennsylvania, preparing on a Saturday for the Christmas pageant, which was to take place on Sunday night. There was a microphone which was in the middle of the stage. It was one of those microphones that was silver, it was large, it had like a grill on the front. And so what you would do is when it was your turn, you would walk up, you would say your piece, such as they wrapped the babe in swaddling clothes and they laid him in a manger and then you would walk back. Well, when I got to the microphone as a five-year-old and I discovered that my voice would be amplified, hello, hello, it was funny, maybe the first eight or ten times that it happened, but when they could not control me, 
and they had to call my father, and my father had to come get me, and I was not allowed to participate in the Christmas pageant the next night. I sat out here while all my friends were on the stage. I, I was just that bad. Back in 2014, my aunt died. She was 98 years old. Well, when you get to be 98, not too many people come to your funeral. They're, most of your friends are, are gone. But we had my aunt's funeral in that church, and after the funeral was over, we are in the fellowship hall, and we are enjoying the finger sandwiches or whatever else it is you eat at the end of a funeral. And one of my Sunday school teachers was there, and I can see it. I can see it in my eyes. The woman walks. She doesn't even walk. She can't walk. She shuffles over to me. I'm thinking, oh, this is sweet. She's coming over to, uh, to greet me. I haven't seen her in a long time. She walks up to me. She looks at me, and she says, you are the worst child that ever attended this church. But, and, then, and then you would expect what would follow would be but praise the Lord, you turned out okay, you, you, you ended up being a pastor. No, it was like this. It was, you were the worst child that ever attended this church. And then she just, she, like she's using what few steps she has left in life to tell me how bad I was. When I was in the sixth grade, I, I mean, I wish something like this would happen today. You know what kind of a lawsuit I would have, but I was in the sixth grade. Mrs. Fischel's desk was at the front of the class. All of the students were lined up, as they should be, and my desk was right beside hers, facing the rest of the students. Why? Because I could not be released into general population. I was that bad, and I remained that bad throughout my teenage years until something happened when I was 17 years old. And what happened was, even though I knew the gospel and was raised in a Christian home, I was arrested by the grace of God and I was gloriously converted and my heart was changed and now, more than anything else, I just loved Jesus Christ and I wanted to be with the people of God, and I wanted to serve God, and all I wanted to do was just read my Bible and to sing hymns and to fellowship with the people of God and to serve God in any way that I could. I mean, I really was gloriously converted, but I had a problem, and my problem in my little church is that I was Eddie Moore. You don't live down that reputation that fast. Nobody, nobody came alongside me except for Jerry Hoover. Who was Jerry Hoover? Jerry Hoover was a hippie, not a hipster who liked pour over coffee and skinny jeans. He was a hippie with genuinely ratty hair and torn jeans. He, when he got saved, his wife left him, and he was left by himself to raise his two kids. We didn't have youth pastors in the 1970s, but he was the 1970s equivalent of a youth pastor. Now, if I were to be with him today, I am sure that we would be in different galaxies theologically. But that's not what mattered in 1977. 
Here's what he did for me. Aaron, he picked up the phone when I called him. He prayed with me. He prayed for me. He read the Bible with me. He rebuked me. He was my friend. He came alongside me. Here's the word for the hour. He encouraged me. I can remember the exact date. I can remember exactly where I was when I made the telephone call. It was Thursday, February 2nd, 1978. That night, we were having a wrestling match. I was a, I was a wrestler in high school. That night, it was the biggest match of the year, I was wrestling Frank Varachetti. His dad was a garbage man. He was a tough Italian kid from Brockway, and I was wrestling him that night. And I was very nervous. So I picked up the phone and I called Jerry and I said, I'm very nervous. I'm very, very distraught. And he said, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, verse 27, where Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, I understand that this is a, this is, this is a hermeneutical disaster. That when, when Jesus was giving the upper room discourse, he did not have in mind a wrestling match that was going to happen at the end of the 20th century. I understand that now, but I didn't understand it back then. But you know what I did, did, underst I did understand? Is that I needed to look to Christ. And so, from that day to this, every time I have been down and out, every time I have been depressed, every time I have been scared, every time that I have been distraught or nervous, I have gone to John 14, 27. But more importantly, where I have gone is to the lover of my soul, Jesus Christ, who said to me, peace I leave with you. Where did I get that? Where in the world did I get that? I got that by virtue of the fact that this hippie picked up the phone and pointed me to the Savior. You don't have to have a seminary degree in order to encourage people. You, you, you don't have to have a title from the church in order to encourage people. You simply need to point them to Christ. So, how can we encourage one another? Let me give you several practical points of application as I close. Brothers and sisters, please learn how to pray with people. Please learn how to pray with people. I'm not saying pray for people. Of course you should pray for people. The scripture encourages us and commands us to pray for one another I'm talking about praying with people. So as a pastor, it's part of my job to always pray with the sick. If someone's in the hospital, um, and, and I hope you pastors still do that. I, I mean, I hope, that, I, I, I hope you guys are still old school. I hope you still go to the hospital and pray with the sick. But I always thought, you know, it's just kind of part of my job. There's not really that much to it. God is omnipresent. What difference does it make if I'm praying at home or praying beside uh, the bed of someone in the hospital? I always thought that there really was not that much to it until I myself needed someone to pray with me. 2011, I got my hip replaced. And like a fool, the night before the surgery, I watched a YouTube video of a hip replacement. Don't do that. Don't, you don't need to see, you don't need to see any surgeries. 
It's, it's gruesome. They, they, they cut you open. They, get, they take out a saw. They cut off your femur. It's, it's brutal. Don't, you don't need to look at it. Well, I went into the surgery uh, somewhat apprehensive. Thankfully, they do this thing when you are being taken in for surgery is that they will ask you six or seven times who you are and what is being done. I, I, I guess so that they will do the, the correct procedure. And in the final stage, right before, I mean, well, in the final stage, right before I was to be taken in to be operated on, the guy comes in and he says, what is your name? I said, Edwin Moore. Where do you work? North Shore Baptist Church. And he said, you're a pastor? I said, yes. He said, hold on, hold on one second, Mr. Moore. He stepped outside of this little cubicle. He motioned for a nurse to come. I can still see it in my mind's eye. He whispers to her, he's a pastor. I can see the woman, like Moses, looking one direction and the other, coming inside the cubicle, pulling the curtains, and then walking over to me, and she said, Pastor, I want to pray for you. And she put her hands on me, and she got down in my ear, and she poured her heart out to God for me and for the surgeon, and it was as if someone had taken a bucket of warm water and had poured it over my head, and the peace of God that passes all understanding was guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus because this woman, whom I had never seen before, whom I will never see again, came alongside me and prayed with me. Brothers and sisters, I believe the purpose of the foyer of the church is the place and the parking lot is the place where we are to pray for one another. You see someone that's struggling. Yes, it is good for you to say, I will pray for you. And if you say that you're going to pray for someone, write it down and actually pray for them. But oh, how sweet it is when a brother or sister is hurting and you come alongside them and you pray with them. That encourages them. Maybe you as the prayer are not that encouraged by it, but I can tell you as a recipient of that, being prayed for by someone is a great form of encouragement. Here's another one. We need to give one another gospel reminders. This kind of goes, you know, without saying, you would think, but not really. Every once in a while, I'll be driving home from church, and I'll say to my wife or to one of my kids, well, how was the sermon this morning? And they'll say, it was pretty good, Dad. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't bad. Um, but you, uh, you forgot the gospel. Thinking, what? I'm a pastor, and it is my job to preach the gospel. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. And if I am spending time in the word, and I as a pastor sometimes in the proclamation of the word overlook or underemphasize or God forbid forget the gospel, what about other people whose job it is not to preach the gospel when they are going through life and Boom, they get popped in the mouth through circumstances and their equilibrium is really rocked. 
I don't know about you, but when things start to go bad, the first thing that comes into my mind is not the gospel. I am concentrating on the waves. I am concentrating on the circumstances. And what you need at, during that time is someone to say, okay, look at me, look at me, here we go. I know you're going through a tough time right now. I'm very sympathetic to that. We're going to talk about that. But let's remember, whether you live or whether you die, you are going to be with him. Christ Jesus died for our sins. You are not destined to damnation, but to inherit salvation. So let's just remember God loves you. Let's remember you are going to be in heaven. Let's remember the reason you're going to be in heaven is because the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, for six hours was crushed on the cross by God the Father and that he has gloriously arisen and that he who did not spare his son but freely or graciously gave him up for us all, how shall he not with this also freely give us all things? Gospel reminders, you, you, you say, well, that's just too elementary. No, we need as biblical counselors to address the specific problem. Yeah, you do need to address the specific problem and have a text as you do it, but let's not forget the gospel as we are encouraging one another. Here's another one. Visit. Visit. In the technological age where we live, um, we communicate through text. If you want to be really warm towards someone, you will send them an email. And if you want to be their very best friend, well, you will actually, like, give them a call. I don't think it's wrong to text people or send them emails or to give telephone calls, but no matter how technologically advanced we become, I think that a personal visit of flesh and blood to flesh and blood is never going to be replaced. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There has to be an incarnational aspect to the ministry and to encouragement. You're just not going to get more encouraging than getting in your car and going to where the person is and seeing them in person. Here's another one. And we mentioned Barnabas earlier. I will speak now to the subject of finances. I will now speak, Aaron, to the subject of generosity. So I'm a seminary student living in Columbia, South Carolina. I just graduated from, from seminary at this point. My wife is pregnant. I am working in a, an apartment complex. I am renting apartments for $5 an hour. We are, we are struggling to get by. This is in Columbia, South Carolina in 1991. At the time, I'm driving a 1976 Buick Skylark, a car of which my father said, Eddie, take that car, wash it, and then burn it. It's not even worthy to be burned in the condition it's in right now. I mean, it was a bomb. And a deacon from our church calls me up one day, and he says, uh, I need to borrow your car. And I'm thinking, wow, how hard up would this guy be that he has to, I mean, fine. So he comes by, he takes the keys, and he comes back an hour and a half later, and there are four new tires on my car. And that is 30 years ago. As long as God gives me my mind, I will never forget that. I, I wept 
when he put those tires on my car. I couldn't afford a new set of tires. That, that, was, that was not within our capacity at the time. B but guys, that was an act which happened 29, 30 years ago, and to this day, it encourages me. What does John the Baptist say? Well, let him who has two give to him who has none. We can encourage one another by giving to one another. It's a great encouragement. Here's another one. I think you can encourage one another by rebuking one another, by correcting one another. So I have a friend, again this is going back about 30 years ago, who was driving from Columbia, South Carolina to New York City, and this is before the days of GPS, and for some reason this guy doesn't have a map, and he says, how do I get to New York City? I said, it's the easiest thing in the world. You just get on I-20 going east, go to I-95 going north, drive as far as you can, you will be at the George Washington Bridge, you'll know it when you see it. So he gets in the car and he begins to drive on I-20 and he drives and he drives and he drives and he drives and he has to use the bathroom so he pulls over and he uses the bathroom, gets in the car, drives and drives and drives again on I-20 and pulls over and has to get gas. Gets back in the car, gets on I-20, drives and drives and drives and drives and thinks, you know, I ought to have seen I-95 by now. So he decides to get off and to ask for directions in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> he was driving in the wrong direction. What does encouragement look like for someone who is going in the wrong direction? Oh, you're doing a good job. Two hands on the wheel, using the rear view mirror, you get, get using your signals under the speed limit. Keep going, man. Keep going. You're doing well. No, brothers, if anyone is taken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. James chapter 5, 19 and 20. If anyone among you wanders, and someone among you brings him back, let him know that he who brings back a sinner from the error of his way has saved a soul from death and has covered a multitude of sins. We are called to come alongside people and to encourage people, but encouragement does not always mean, good job, keep going, keep going. No, encouragement sometimes means, look at me, listen to me. I love you, you are wrong, you need to turn around. Final word, if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. Several years ago, I was in a conference, and there was a young man that was preaching in that conference, and he did a very good job, and so at the conclusion of his sermon, I sent him a very brief text, and I said, good job, man, really enjoyed the word today, I'm proud of you, send. That was it. A few months later, this young preacher and I are in the same uh, uh, lineup, but we're preaching in a different place, and, and he's preaching again, and once again, just sort of, it, it just didn't take much at all. I just said, man, good job today. I was, I was really convicted by the word, 
Thank you for preaching today. Brother, it was faithful. I'm proud of you. Hit send. When the service was over, he comes up to me and he said, several months ago, you sent me a text in which you told me that you were proud of me. When you did that, I showed the text to my wife and the two of us wept uncontrollably together because I do not have a Christian father. In fact, I have never had a man tell me that he was proud of me. And now you have done it again today and I really can't handle it. And I'm saying, why not? Why has no one ever come alongside this guy and said, you're doing a good job, I am proud of you. Why are we so stingy with our words? If you go to a Waffle House, the waitress may or may not have teeth. She will wait on you and she will take your water glass after you have drank or drunk, I don't know what the right verb is, half of it, and she will fill it from the middle to the top. You will turn to her and you will say, thank you. But yet, someone will stand in the pulpit and they will for 40 minutes, or if it is me, for an hour, bring the word of God to you and I'm not talking about the skill of the homiletics. I'm not talking about how articulate someone is. I'm just talking about someone faithfully feeding you the bread of life. They will feed the bread of life to you. And you will not even acknowledge that it happened. I mean, I would like it if people, when they were leaving on Sunday morning and they were shaking hands with me, if they would say, that was horrible. It, that would be more encouraging than for there just to be this time warp where they didn't even acknowledge that it happened. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are not pastors, I believe in all cases, everywhere and every week, if the man who has brought you the Word of God has been faithful to the text. He doesn't have to be Spurgeon. In, in fact, I would say if the guy is a good commentator or a good, a good communicator and you are commenting on that, you are not really encouraging him, but you are more or less flattering him. We're not talking about one's skill to speak publicly. I'm just talking about one's faithfulness to be in the Word. If someone has studied and they have given you the Word of God how dare you walk out and you don't even acknowledge or say thank you or that was good or that helped me or I'm proud of you. I mean, our churches are filled with people that are serving. It used to be before COVID, we used to have this thing called a nursery and we would take our children there and we would drop them off. It's the most thankless job in the world. Sound men. Why anybody in their right mind would ever want to be a sound man? It's like being an umpire. If you do your job, nobody ever knows that you do your job right. But if you make a mistake, all eyes are on you. Those of you who preach, thank the sound man. You see a woman coming in who has this deadbeat husband who doesn't come to church or maybe he's not even converted and, and she's schlepping three kids, one in each arm and one in her leg, into the church. 
do you know what it could mean to her for you just to come alongside her and say, thank you for putting forth the effort to be here today. I know that it was not easy to wrestle these kids into the car. God bless you and thank you. In fact, we need to develop a culture like Barnabas where we, here we go, see the grace of God. That, that's, that's what it is a matter of. This is where encouragement comes. Because if, if what you're doing is you are just looking at the skill of a person and you are praising them, well then the glory is being robbed from Christ. But if you see the grace of God in someone, something that could happen only by the Lord, the Holy Spirit working in them, and then you are glad by that, like it makes you happy to see the grace of God at work, and then you Open your mouth and you do what the scripture says in light of the gospel. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. We build a culture in our churches where people are encouraging one another. And let me just say this, pastors. The likelihood of your people being encouragers, if you yourself are not, is very slim. You're going to have people who are just not going to be encouragers. But by the grace of God, train your people to be encouragers. And the best way that you can train your people to be encouragers is for you yourself to be an encourager. So, if you see something, say something. Because this is what the Christian life is. It's a bunch of people out there in this world of discouragement with the devil and circumstances pressing down on them and they're doing the best that they can and they've got their eyes closed and they are making their way through life and 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 they're they're saying marco marco and they're not hearing anything they're not sure which way to go you know what they need they need you to be saying polo come on Come on, you're going the right way. No, 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 listen to my voice. You're going the wrong way. Come this way. Polo, polo. We need to be encouraging one another and building one another up in light of the gospel. Father, thank you for the men and women that have taken their time to be here today. Uh, Lord, we should never be discouraged. Thank you, Lord, objectively for all that you have done for us in the gospel. Lord, thank you subjectively for all that you have done in our lives. But Lord, we are people who are easily discouraged. And so Lord, thank you that in your wisdom you have instructed us to encourage one another and build one another up. I pray, Lord, that the men and women in this room will take that challenge, Lord, today and that they will practice this for your glory, observing the grace of God, being glad, and then speaking. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.